My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give participants in a wide range of social change work a chance to take a longer view as they talk about what they do, how they do it, and why they do it. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Sarah Chibber. We are living in a time of generalized attack on unions and on workers, both in the context of specific workplaces and also by right-wing and neoliberal political parties and governments. At the same time, every instance of struggle around these attacks happens in a specific context, to specific groups of workers, facing very specific challenges and opportunities. Local 1281 of the Canadian Union of Public Employees, or CUPE, is in some ways a little bit peculiar as union locals go. It is a composite local that represents people in many small workplaces across southern Ontario with a particular presence in not-for-profit and social justice-oriented workplaces. Between October 1st of last year and February 28th of this year, the four QP1281 members who are staff at the Continuing Education Students Association of Ryerson University, or CSER, were locked out by their employer. The union and the workers remain somewhat mystified by why this lockout happened. It's quite unprecedented across the many workplaces in which members of this local are employed, and the fact that it did happen seems in part due to some fairly quirky decision-making by the employer. Despite that, though, the union has worked hard all along to make it clear that even given these very local and specific features to the lockout, it was also part of this larger pattern of attacks faced by many different unions and many different workers. Chibber is the president of QP1281. We had originally hoped to include at least one of the Caesar workers in the conversation as well, but as it turned out, the same day that we had planned to do the interview ended up being the day that the oddly uncertain and protracted back-to-work process for the locked-out workers finally came to a resolution. They got, at long last, to return to their jobs, so they weren't available to talk to me. But Chibber generously talked about both the local as a whole and about the long, difficult struggle of the Caesar workers. I spoke with Chibber, and as a careful listener may detect at a few points, her eight-month-old baby, by Skype to phone from Toronto. My name is Sarah Chibber, and I am president currently of QP Local 1281. And QP Local 1281 is a composite local. We represent members in small, largely not-for-profit workplaces from Ottawa to Windsor. I think that the premise along the way has always been to organize along these lines. I've only been a member since 2000, but my understanding has been that prior to it had been a direction that had been actively pursued in terms of creating a space for members in smaller workplaces, which is not often a case. I think that given surfacing needs, a lot of larger unions are reticent to organize smaller workplaces. And so we've carved a niche in terms of being able to service smaller groups and particularly groups that have that shared progressive mandate. So we represent staff at the 11 Ontario Public Interest Research Groups, for example. We represent staff at some Canadian Federation of Students, some locals, for example, CSER, uh, staff at Mayworks or at the Workers' Arts and Heritage Centre. And what that means is that we are sort of limited in terms of coming together as numbers. We're spread out across province and in terms of being small workplaces, we're looking, you know, on average, maybe five people within a space. Sometimes we have one person in an office 
And the interesting challenge with regard to representing folks in this kind of sphere is that you're dealing with an employer group with whom you often have fairly good relations. I mean, in a typical labor context, people often, and I guess this is a stereotype, but people often look at it as worker versus employer. And when you're working in a not-for-profit or social justice-oriented space, your employer is often going to be somebody who shares your progressive values or shares that progressive vision. They are often people who are on boards of directors because they believe in the mandate or values of the organization. So on the one hand, it makes for a great workspace when things are going well, but it becomes complicated when you get into a situation like the Caesar example, where for whatever reason, bargaining isn't going according to plan. And then you get this challenge where on the face of it, the employer group is an ally group, and yet you're dealing with a labor struggle and having to represent your members to the best of your ability. And we have these conversations. We try to have periodic educationals, whether it's by Stewards Council or through our convention, to have conversations about, you know, how to move forward, taking care of ourselves as workers. But also, there is a need to be conscious of the fact that many of our employers are not going to be capable of providing, you know, a lot of, of extras, if I can call them that, for want of a better expression. I think that there is a fine line situation where people are, again, because of the shared mandate, keen to do the work, but sometimes, you know, there's like a a tip in the balance. Folks will be reticent about asking for wage increases sometimes because they're aware of the fact that the employer group doesn't have the means to provide that increase. And they know that if it's a group that is dependent upon granting, for instance, it wouldn't work, right? And so I think what we try to do is have discussions with our workers and through bargaining to try to find the best case scenario moving forward so that workers aren't sacrificing their needs, but at the same time, we're not doing anything to push that employer group into a situation where they can't then provide basic things for our workers. I understand that there's a great deal of variation from local to local in terms of engagement with issues beyond immediate workplace issues. Is QP1281 particularly involved in that kind of action? Yeah, we try to be. I think that it's sort of a natural reflection of who we are, and it goes back to types of members we have. And so, you know, when you're talking about members being organizers, while I couldn't say that about the local as a whole, we certainly have a large enough group of folk who are very politically engaged in terms of doing organizing work, whether it be through trade unionism or other issues, that, you know, there's always this thrust. We always try to have some sort of popular education mandate or through representing the local at various events that may be taking place in one of the cities that we have staff in. Yeah, I mean, I think that it would be safe to say that you would find 1281 members actively representing. And how does that play out in practical terms, given the fact that the local is comprised of lots and lots of very dispersed small workplaces? There must be logistical challenges to bringing folks together to engage with issues. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the key to that is that there is a lot of independent engagement. We won't necessarily be plotting out from behind the scenes what people do. It's just sort of a natural reflection of who our members are. We don't really have the means, for example, to have a political action committee that's on the ground and doing side organizing. But we can have conversations with folks to give them a heads up about something that may be happening that they may not be already aware of. I think for the most part, we're lucky in that our membership is quite 
quite engaged, and so they're usually quite up on things, especially local issues, but there are communications that take place, like whether it's a phone call or an email, to let people know about issues that are cropping up or meetings that might be taking place or events that might require, you know, some sort of representation or participation. But for the most part, our members take that on themselves. And in terms of new workplaces joining the local, what's the path that that usually follows? Is there an active organizing program that QP1281 engages in, or is it it's known by people who work in that sector as the place to go once they've already decided to join a union? For the most part, historically, it's been word of mouth. I will say that in the recent past, we've had a bit of a moratorium on organizing just as we've expanded our staffing because the other crucial issue is we want to make sure that we can service our various workplaces. There has been some discussion about revisiting that decision, but we have been really conscious of the fact that we don't want to go out there and sign anybody up and not have the mechanism in place to appropriately service their needs. And in your time of involvement with the local, are there other instances where collective bargaining has turned into the kind of you know, fairly significant conflict that happened in the Caesar instance that we're going to talk about? No, not at all. In fact, this would have been certainly the first time in my experience and I've been active with the union since I started. So yeah, for over 13 years, I've never seen anything like this happen. It's been my understanding that it's the first time it's happened historically. So let's turn to the lockout now. Paint me a bit of a picture of where things were before the lockout in terms of the collective bargaining. Well, it had been an elongated process, and that in and of itself isn't necessarily unusual. It does happen sometimes. It's unfortunate that through change of directors, some of our workplaces have annual elections with boards, and sometimes there's complete turnover or shifts in terms of folks who had been part of the process that oftentimes can prolong bargaining. But in this particular case, my understanding has been that it had just gotten to the point where it's been going on and on. Where I entered the picture shortly after my election was to get to a point where the board that was current to the lockout had basically gotten to the point where they just stopped bargaining. We were conscious of the fact that a lockout was a possibility. We did not want to strike in this particular workplace, particularly a space that offers services to students. We wanted to do what we could to make sure that we prevented any kind of disruption of service. And so we did actually go ahead and pull from the table a lot of things that we thought that we could negotiate just to give it a paring down and get into a situation where we felt that they would come back to negotiate with us and or just sign off. That unfortunately didn't happen. And what were the key general areas where the union and the employer differed before the lockout started? There was a lot of discussion about monetary, and so, again, we dialed back on that. They were very vocal about a number of different things just before and post-lockout, and, you know, some of those issues we dispute. I don't want to get into the nitty-gritty of it, but it was very it was very difficult for us because we wanted to be able to have this conversation with the employer through a collective bargaining process to see what is it, what is it exactly that you have the issue with so that we can have that conversation and come back to you with something that would be amenable. And that conversation ceased 
my best guess is that it was really monetary and benefits and that kind of stuff. But the complicating thing is that when we came back to the table before the lockout, we had again I won't say that we had capitulated, but we had certainly come back with a response that would, I think, in any other context have been acceptable. So it's difficult for me to understand what motivated the walkout. And at the end of the walkout, it's still, given what we were able to sign off on, it's still a little bit confusing to me what the purpose was. And what was the public information that was being communicated about the lockout and the reasons for it at that time? Well, this is the thing that's interesting. I can't speak to what was really going on with the employer group, but there are a whole host of different things. Like, I mean, there were some things that we absolutely dispute that they were putting out there in terms of, you know, QP's demand for more money, for example. Things that were just, you know, like extra sick days or holiday time that were just not things that were even on the table. And so there were various things were going back and forth. We were very consistent in our messaging, which was that we were willing to take a little bit of a hit in the sense that we wanted to keep working. We have always been very clear, very vocal about the fact that we were not wanting any kind of disruption of services to students. There's 16,000 part-time and continuing education students who rely upon staff at CSER. And any kind of lockout or labor disruption really puts them at a disadvantage. Again, it goes back to the nature of the work that we do and the kind of workplaces that we represent and the kind of people who work in these workplaces. Most of the time, our staff are people who are committed politically. They're motivated by a particular politic. So our staff have been very clear that they just want to get back to work. So the dialogue has been very interesting if you follow their website, their truth corner, as they put it, about labor. They put our collective agreement on the website or the earlier version, which was a little bit off-putting because, you know, through bargaining, the earlier collective agreement wasn't really a clear reflection in terms of what we had come back and forth with. So I'm not really clear on what they were trying to get at, but at the end of the day, we just wanted to be back at work. In the early situation of the lockout, what were the options that you as the local and the workers themselves had in dealing with this? What options for action were there? We could have shut down the building, but it wasn't, I think, politically something that was good for us to do. Our idea from the get-go was to do an info picket to explain to students the fact that we were in this situation. And given the unique needs of a composite local, we had to rely a lot upon solidarity from our own sub-locals, from QP Ontario, QP National, other unions on campus to supplement our lines. And we had other services that we eventually had to look at in terms of withdrawal to put pressure on the employer group. But yeah, we were largely in a position of having to do info pickets daily to get the messaging out there. The other unique aspect of this particular workplace is that, again, it represents part-time and continuing education students. And those aren't people who are necessarily always on campus or always making use of the building where the office is maintained. You want to make sure that people are aware of what's going on through your messaging, but meeting those people is a little bit difficult when you're in an urban campus with a lot of later evening traffic, for example and diverse traffic, like people who are going to different classroom spaces that are all over the Ryerson campus. We basically decided to take the approach of having a central picket space and then rotating it in order to hand out materials or let people know about what was happening. And we did hold a number of different events, bigger events, 
We had a dance the walkout away party. We had um, say Buddha walkouts event where we had speakers who were representing various ally groups and our members as well, talking about what was going on and trying to generate more interest. And we found those to be really successful things, more so than if we were to shut down a building that was housing allies and looking at impacting full-time students and workers who were paycheck to paycheck staff at the pub or the cafe as well. So those were things that we had to keep in mind in terms of where our action plan was and in terms of trying to put pressure on the employer. You mentioned that there came a point where you thought about other services or targeting other services or withdrawal of other services. I wasn't entirely clear what you meant by that. So there is, as per an agreement with the Ryerson Students Union, a discounted Metro Pass. Caesar students are also entitled to this as well. And we were really reticent about pulling the Metro Pass from students because, again, our goal was to have the least amount of impact. Eventually, it came to the point where after two and a half months of nothing from the employer, we opted to do that. And what we did was present materials to students saying, you know, we were loath to do this, but we really need to put pressure on the employer to get back to the bargaining table so that we can resume work for you. And in fact, I think many students, while inconvenienced, unfortunately, by the loss of the discounted Metro Pass, really understood what was going on and took to email to communicate their displeasure with the employer. We felt that it actually did help leverage something in that we did finally get dates to start speaking to them. But in the long run, you know, it did help us. Tell me about the range of responses that you got from students who were impacted. I felt that students were really quite supportive of the situation. We had different email campaigns as well, and we had a lot of support from students who were emailing the employer to ask them to get back to the table because they didn't have access to services that they were paying for. So it was good. Sad that it had to happen this way, but it was good to get this conversation going and to generate contact with students who were very clear about wanting you know, an employer to get back to the table. Was there also a constituency among the students that were more hostile to the union position as well? There's always going to be a group that will take the opposite viewpoint. There was a minority, and I can clearly say it was a minority just in terms of the responses that we received versus the responses that we were able to send to them. But it never got to the point where it was a well-organized anti-union fight back. Tell me a little bit more about the public education events that you held who you managed to attract to them, what kinds of things you did there, that kind of thing. We tried to stay fun and upbeat about what was really a very negative situation, obviously, and very trying for staff. So what we opted to do was hold specific, quote-unquote, dance parties. You know, what we did was have a lot of music in the background, um, food, and we had speakers who represented QP Ontario. We had members of the Ryerson Faculty Association, members of the Ryerson Students Union. We had folks from other QP locals. We had folks from OPSU locals on campus come and talk about the broader issues, but all within a good time event versus more of a, a serious and, you know, I don't want to say negative, but <laughs> more of an upbeat vibe to discussing what it meant broadly to have this kind of labor disruption in a campus context and, and looking beyond that in terms of what it meant for folks on a day-to-day -day basis and how this could reflect further within an austerity situation. 
It was really useful. We had a lot of walk-bys. We had people stop because this was outside. We had a lot of Caesar students and RSU students. We also had a lot of community members come out and take a listen and get engaged with what was going on because, again, our argument, if I can call it that, is that this isn't something that is specific to one small QP sublocal, but you could take it to be a reflection of a broader shift in terms of how people perceive labor and other challenges in terms of how people understand the union context. There are often people who have this idea that if staff are unionized, that we're living a gilded life, and that's not the case. Many union workers do enjoy benefits, but we don't all make the same amount of money. We don't all have the same kind of job security. And a lot of the benefits that we receive are hard fought. And one positive that came out of this really dark situation was being able to have this conversation broadly and get people who may not have been attuned to what was going on opening up to the broader issue of labor and politics and austerity. Tell me more about that connection between this specific struggle and the broader political context. One thing that we did was there was a, a ongoing labor issue with, for example, the Rich Tree restaurant workers near the Eaton Center. Those folks were food service workers who had been locked out as well. And we had some of them come and speak. Part of that was not just solidarity, but to highlight the fact that what we were dealing with wasn't happening in a vacuum. And that really what we're looking at is a broader attack on workers' rights, whether they're unionized workers or not. And on a campus, it's interesting, especially when you're looking at an urban campus with a lot of folks who are not necessarily straight out of high school, there are people who are reflecting all aspects of post-secondary life. There are a lot of people who are back to school after taking several years off, folks who got into work right after high school who are taking university courses to quote-unquote better their skill sets or get certification in order to get jobs that pay them decent living wages. And so having a conversation about attacks on workers on this campus in the open brokered more of a discussion around what's next and what to expect. I think that a lot of people have imbibed this concept that you do post-secondary and you're guaranteed some sort of better wage or more of a guaranteed job situation, which we unfortunately know is not necessarily the case. The government can release any number of reports that talk about how much more money the university grad will make compared to someone who graduated high school or college, but they're not necessarily talking about wage inequality or the disparity in terms of what people make and where they work. I think that there have been a lot of discussions about the future of labor, and I think now more than ever, people have to understand the importance of unions in this context in terms of trying to fight for decent wages for people who are coming out of the post-secondary sector, often with higher and higher debt loads, and looking at employers who feel as though, you know, sick days are an important benefit. I mean, those are the discussions that we were having coming out of these walkout events. What were some of the ways that QP more broadly and the labor movement more broadly expressed and showed solidarity with the workers in this lockout? The first thing I have to say is we would not have been able to do this without the support of QP Ontario and QP National. The challenge of the Compsa local is that we can't get all our members out to align in any given workplace. This is sort of worst nightmare scenario for a composite local because we can't get people to bus in from Windsor or Ottawa. And so we had QP backing us up all the way. We had folks coming down to support us on the line. We had solidarity donations coming in. We had people in different district labor councils helping to organize support tickets. 
we relied a lot upon that kind of effort. And were it not for that, I think that on a human level, it would have been really tough, but also in terms of practical, physical presence, we wouldn't have been able to do it. It was really great to see that actually come together, and we're really grateful. We're really grateful for the support that we received, certainly the physical support to the monetary, even just the emails that we received or the phone calls from people who were offering us well wishes. It meant a lot to staff, absolutely. Tell me about the end process of the lockout. What happened that led to what today has become the workers back at work? It's been a very, very interesting process what happened to the, the meeting of settlement. We did have to file with the Labor Board. We filed against the employer, and we had a meeting of settlement before a hearing. And during that meeting of settlement, we were able to successfully sign off on a collective agreement that, you know, frankly, we were happy with. We were content with it. And again, it begs the question, why, why, if this is the case, did our members have to go through the lockout, and why did students have to lose services for over four months? But things get intriguing post the signing of the settlement because we then ran into a situation where the members of the executive at Caesar started resigning in a staggered context. And so we never got a back-to-work protocol. It was a very bizarre situation because our staff couldn't go back without an employer. Now, what ended up happening was Tuesday night, a general meeting was held of Caesar membership and an interim executive was elected I wasn't there. I mean, I'm not a Caesar member, but that was my understanding. And the new executive made some calls, got in touch with us, and set up back-to-work protocol. So our staff are back to work today. So notwithstanding that this particular situation seems to have some very specific quirks to it, given the broader pattern of attacks on workers, attempts to roll back wages and benefits, and all of those kinds of things, Are you concerned that you might see more situations like this in the various workplaces that you represent? It would be foolish not to look at this as an example of what could be the case. The hope is always that it won't happen again. And given the fact that this was the first time that we had to deal with such a situation, we would hope that we wouldn't see this again. But obviously, we'll take our experience of this lockout and it'll be in the back of our minds moving forward. But by the same token, we learned a lot from this. We learned a lot from the type of support we received. And I feel like we have the confidence moving forward to know that we can make it. We can do this. And I think that's the benefit of being in a unionized workplace. There is action that we can take. There are supports that we can receive. And moving forward, I mean, there's that fear, I think, and anxiety about what would happen in this kind of context. I think the one hope is that other employers, not just 1281 employers, but other employers are are looking at this situation and getting to see that really it's not a useful thing to do. I mean, I don't think that it was a success for this employer to lock out their staff. It didn't help them, I think, in any way. And if anything, put them in a really difficult situation with their own membership. But, you know, that's subjective, right? That's my read on it. I think the important thing is, despite our challenges and our circumstances, we mutually, and by we I mean our members in the Caesar workplace and outside of the Caesar workplace, really learned what union membership was all about. I think that it's one thing to be a union member, to pay your dues and, you know, to have your meetings and your popular ed, but it's an entirely other situation to be put in a lockout situation to determine what actually happens. And it maybe sounds paradoxical, but it was kind of refreshing despite the really terrible situation to be able to see how the supports came together. 
You have been listening to my interview with Sarah Chibber, president of Local 1281 of the Canadian Union of Public Employees. She has been talking about the local as a whole and about the recently ended prolonged lockout of the four QP 1281 members who are staff at the Continuing Education Students Association of Ryerson University, or CSER, in Toronto. To find out more about the local, go to qp1281.ca. That's qp1281.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to make suggestions about topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link marked radio. That's talkingradical.ca. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Sudbury, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thanks.